Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, we'll be talking about the science of dogs. It seems that no matter how much we uh, research dogs, the science that we do with them seems to tell us more about us than it does of them. We'll be speaking to Jules Howard, author of Wonder Dog. If you'd like to get in touch with us on the programme, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at NewstalkScience. Uh, all right, it's time to look back as we do on the week's science news. And joining us in studio is uh, Catherine McGuinness, science communicator, and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. Shane, our first story is to do with the Da Vinci mission. What yeah. is that exactly? We are going to Venus, Jonathan. Um, us? Well, wouldn't that when, be fun? When, when? <laughs> yeah. Kick off, kick off. What a date. <laughs> uh, so, no, NASA are going to, to Venus. I, I'm sure your listeners will be <laughs> glad to hear that. And they're leaving in 2029 um, with a, a, quite an exciting mission that's called Da Vinci, which is Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Nobel Gases Chemistry and Imaging. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how they turned that into Da Vinci, but that's pretty cool. And they're going because we've actually never seen the surface of Venus because it's covered in cloud. Um, and it's it's one of our nearest neighbours and we know so little about it. It's covered in clouds, but they're not like the clouds here on Earth that are full of water vapour. It's full of toxic chemicals, but we don't know really a great deal about what lies beneath. We have some sort of radar techniques that we've we've spoken about on the show before. But what's going to happen here is there's going to be this probe that will go around the planet twice, do a drive-by. And then in uh, 2031, it's going to dive into the atmosphere of Venus. And over the course of an hour, it's going to suck up parts of the atmosphere. And as it dives into the atmosphere, which is layered, it's going to be able to kind of sniff and test the different uh, chemicals that are in there. And they're looking for two in particular, two isotopes of the element hydrogen, because those isotopes are sort of chemical fingerprints of of past water on Venus. God, we're so obsessed with bloody water, aren't we? Yeah. In every mission. I wonder if there's water there. Yeah. Like, was the, like, was the, the, the founder of NASA just like really thirsty all the time? Like, why, do we, why do we care about finding water on planets everywhere? Because if there's water, then it's most likely there's life. Well, it's more likely that there is life. Uh, but Venus is just fascinating anyway. I don't know why we have to tag life onto to everything is my point. Absolutely. Well, you know what, Jonathan, you, you should bring that up with them when no doubt we'll come back Back to this story in 2029 uh, when the sh- uh, when the uh, the ship launches and hopefully in 2031 when it has that deep dive and I will remind you that day when everyone gets excited right. about the discovery of water of your cynicism. Uh, so. Um as you say, we haven't uh, we haven't done this before, but um, s- sort of sniffing the atmosphere for molecules is something that we we have have done before. Yeah, um, and, on Titan. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the Huygens probe um, went through the uh, the atmosphere of Titan, and of course Titan has these these geysers that it shoots out, and uh, we were very interested to know what was in there, and we were looking for uh, <laughs> maybe water, but also <laughs> car- carbon rich molecules that would have been exhaust from life. So it's it's really quite interesting. Like they're going to learn, and actually, one thing that's very cool is once it gets through the clouds, there'll be a couple of seconds where it can see the terrain, and it's going to immediately beam all of the data back to Earth before it hits the ground at twenty five uh, kilometers an hour. And they're saying it may not survive that impact. It's mm. not designed to. If it does, it'll only last for a couple of minutes more. But all that data has to get back to us here on Earth before the probe. Uh, shuts down for good, uh, which is really cool. Um, 
and I think there's going to be a camera on it, isn't there? There's going to be yeah. high quality cameras so we'll get to see this um, Absolutely. In, in high definition. Yeah. yeah, and they're looking at a particularly interesting part of Venus where they know there are mountains and I'm guessing they, they reckon there's like Venetian weather there. Is Venetian the word for Venus? I don't know. Venus Venusian. weather. Venusian weather, mm. exactly. Venetian's yeah. Venice. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Also a nice Lots place. Lots of water. Lots yeah. of water, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our second story is also to do with water or, or um, more correctly, um, animals that live in it. Otters. Aquatic animals, yeah. Um, so this is a study done by the University of Exeter and it's looking at the Asian short-clawed otter, which are they're the smallest otter that there is. They are freshwater mainly, but also you get them in coastal regions. Um, it takes me back to my days in Dublin Zoo because the zoo had them for a lot of long time and we had babies during COVID Aww. and Tato Park and a few other places in the country have them. They're very charismatic, very playful, very intelligent animals. And what we're looking at really is um, animal learning because years and years ago, zoologists, when we thought, well, how does an animal in the wild know to do anything? Well, it was put down to, oh, it's instinct. Oh, sure, you know yourself, it's instinct. And wild animals have instincts, that's it, they're born with them, good luck. And uh, then uh, Jane... Well, that's that, that's, that's that, yeah, I'll see you later. I love zoology, it's great. And then there's physics stuff. But <laughs> all this does is just all looking into things. No, but um, so we had Jane Goodall then had a look at her chimps and we she, she observed all sorts of passing on of information and acquiring of skills from each other and then that was taught okay well obviously it's just primates because they're so intelligent they do this and then actually in the 90s um, tigers tigresses were observed to teach skills to their, their cubs so as time has gone on we've noticed a lot of animals teach skills to each other Can I ask you a question? Mm. When you say teach how does teaching different and now, like, I know you're a big teaching person, so you're going to take great insult at <laughs> School it. of what, education what I mean in the corner is, there, no? What, what I mean is, if you are, um, ha, ha, for an animal, how does teaching um, differ from just looking at your it's, dad it's, it's, doing it's, it? And then it's observational, it? yeah, that's what it is. It's acquired. So, you, so when, when you have you have either learning or you've got a qu- acquisition of learning. Right. So with animals, it's a, they're acquiring the learning. They're, they're watching and then they try it out themselves and they eventually get good at it. Right, okay. And, and so that, that's how, that's how many mammals anyway, how we understand how they learn. Right. But uh, how, what, I, what I mean is like all animals spend time with their parents mm. why do we not just assume they were also learning why would we think that they weren't learning if they're spending time with their parents their parents are going fishing or hunting for food uh, is that not learning or is it am I, I missing something I, I, I just think I think it's, I think zoologists in the past just didn't really look into it that, that hard you know there were there was they'd other of, things to do they'd other, yeah exactly it's just like oh, and nature isn't it great it heals itself it's wonderful there was so much of it there was, yeah. well, that, that's true <laughs> and, there, and there's, there's more even you know it, it's coming up all over the place but um, tell sorry, me about the otters back to the otters because there, there is a really important um, outcome from this so the in Newquay Zoo and in Tamar Otter and Wildlife Centre over in England they uh, had these puzzle boxes and the puzzle boxes could be opened in different ways and they filled the boxes with two types of food so food that the otters were used to uh, meatballs in particular they were really into their their meatballs I mean, it's the only what? reason it's the only reason I have an Ikea f- a family card lads you know what I mean it's there you go. So these were obviously domesticated otters. These were, yeah, they're, they're, oh, okay. it, they were yeah, wild they're otters. Wild. They're, they're, yeah, so they love meatballs. <laughs> so they're they're in captivity. So they were put in things like uh, the food that they were eating in in captivity. But they also in some of the boxes they had food that would that in the wild they would encounter like crab and uh, shellfish. And so once the otters learned how to open the boxes and extract the food, um, they observed how they dealt with the new type of food that was safe to eat. And what they observed really was that when an otter was working on his own trying to open a box, he was happy enough 
to just keep going. Um, but when he came, came across food he didn't understand or didn't know it was new to him, he would watch what the others would do with mm. the food first. You know, so if you think like hmm. early man was just kind of like, right, lads, the 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 red mushrooms have killed Dave, so no one eat more red mushrooms. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So it, so they they wanted to see what the others were doing. Right. So they were happy to work out the puzzles on their own. But when they came across some an unusual food source, they wanted to see what the other that's guys incredible. were doing. Wow. That's social learning, right? Like yeah. So, so it's yeah. it's absolutely it's social learning that that's it. And why this is so important is that. The main target of zoos nowadays is to rehabilitate and to raise animals to go back reintroduced into the wild. So if we can understand that these animals can learn and their social learning, that once they are reintroduced into the wild, it helps them readjust themselves to the wild, learn how to survive in their own habitat, but also pass skills on to other otters. Yeah, and they and, and they may have learned some cool new tricks in the zoo as well. That That's <laughs> um, Shane, our third story is a, is, a, is a small but remarkable result for a cancer trial. Absolutely. It's not often, I believe, headlines, that, uh, science headlines that have the word breakthrough in them because it's normally overhyped. But this seems to be one, right? It's, it's, it's using something called immunotherapy uh, to treat cancer. And we know that for most cancers, it's either you cut it out, you you hit it with radiation or with chemotherapy. But this is different. It's using um, the patient's own immune system to to kill the cancer. Um, so these were 14 people who had rectal cancer, but they also had a, a genetic quirk uh, in their cancer cells. And that made them the perfect uh, uh, test patients for a new drug. And the results have been published in the New uh, England Journal of Medicine. And remarkably, after six months, not one of those 14 people has any sign of cancer at all. Now, um, what, what, the, what happened here was that the drug works by, um, by, by, by giving a message to the T cell, right? Which is um, killer cell. a killer cell, exactly. Yeah. A part of our immune system. One of the uh, side effects of this type of cancer is it, it kind of puts a cloaking device on the T cell. So the T cell doesn't know that the cancer cell is bad and it's not going to go and kill it. But what the drug does is basically take off the cloaking device. So the T cell now can see the cancer and it, it, it therefore attacks it. And being able to see that cancer cell is special for these 14 because of their genetic quirk. Right. So it basically means their cancer cells are a little bit more obvious, more seeable. So that what makes them a little bit different. It also is why they're saying that this is not a full cure, right? Because what they've been able to show is it works for a very small cohort of people. And what they'll have to do next is figure out how you can make that more generalizable for anyone who'd have that type of cancer. Right. But it's incredible that from a phase two trial, such a convincing result has come out. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and having zero, pretty much zero side effects from my understanding of the paper, as well as zero cancer in, in this particular case, is really interesting. But you said something there that I only learned um, a couple of years ago that um, that we sequence the DNA of of tumours as well as uh, as patients when we're trying to find out ways of trying to tackle something like cancer. So um, if you uh, if you have a certain type of cancer and you're in the facility um, that that would be able to do this, you can get a screening of your tumour to see how certain genetic uh, therapies might actually work to reduce or, yeah. or limit the tumour. So it's immunotherapy, but it's completely personalised. So it's unique to you. Amazing. Our final story, Catherine, is another animal story. We uh, we we thought we'd. Uh, find one that really suited your um, your interests. It's to do with chickens. <laughs> <laughs> chickens, yeah. A bombshell. Chickens, domesticated chickens, haven't been around for as long as we previously thought. How long? Uh, well, it was previously thought that, that maybe domesticated chickens were 
as long as 10,000 years ago they were around and living with humans up to about 7,000. But what new studies from Oxford and from Exeter has shown that actual proper domesticated chickens living with humans only really started about 1,500 BC in China. Wow. And then it moved quite quickly across the continent. And by the Iron Age, you had chickens living with humans in Europe. And they actually think that not only were they living with humans, they were venerated. Because any any um, of the remains that are found, they're not butchered. And that the animal is usually buried by itself. And also, what? yeah, and also you, that sometimes there were cockerels were buried with men and hens were buried with women. So there's some sort well, of... Like they were a pet? Pet or maybe some some sort of ritual, something. I mean, it's, I mean, it's hard a to say. holy chicken, you're joking. Possibly. Well, they gave possibly. food. It's like a cow, right? It gives food continuously. Well, so yeah, we, see, we, can't, we can't say for sure what happened to the eggs because, ah. you know, they're, they're, I mean, it's so difficult enough to, to with radio, radiocarbon dating with bones. So we, we can only speculate on that. But we really, we don't really have any evidence of chickens being used for food and eggs being used for food until the Romans. And the late Romans seemed to popularise this. And then... Well, depending on the emperor, they they got up to some crazy oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Caligula yeah. and Nero. <laughs> and that. Yeah, they rabbit's noses and... Hey, has, anyone ever, has anyone ever thought about eating this? <laughs> what? <laughs> back, back to the red mushroom again, you know? Yeah, exactly. If it didn't kill Dave, it's well, probably okay. the first one who ate chicken probably went, holy crap, yeah. <laughs> I've got on Just wait, wait, wait till they invent barbecue and this is going to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so these, so these uh, chickens, I mean, like, is it... Is that unusual for a bird to be sort of given like private burials, like or or are there like emus and ostriches through history that have been given like very special? Yeah, in, in in Europe, see, this is this is the, the I suppose it's the issue with that era. So you're talking the Iron Age, talking about 500 BC. There isn't a lot of evidence. There's nothing written. So we can only decide on what we find in burials, and on on the on the uh, mainland in Europe. Some of these chickens were buried whole, which suggests there was, there was something that they weren't touched. Yeah. They weren't possibly a pet or I don't know. But, um, you know, in Ireland, if we go to Newgrange, we go to our ancient burial sites. There, there are animal remains there as well, whether they were sacrifices rather than because because these were buried, these yeah. were um, cremated and buried separately from humans. Whereas in some of the parts of Europe, the chickens are with the humans. So... Can I ask it opens stupid, a lot of questions. Can I ask a really stupid question mm. before we go? Um, where, were chickens, like, did chickens fly properly before we domesticated? Do we breed the adaptation that they couldn't really go very far from us? Uh, uh, is from, that something we what, bred into them? From what we from what we know at the moment, no, that they were, they were probably already a bird, either a ground bird or a bird that would jump and and um, glide yeah. which which is what I mean modern chickens can still do that they can jump down and glide so no it, it that, that possibly happened a lot before where we stubby, domesticated them they? yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and I, we yeah, we probably just made them even lazier and worse because just overfed them that's it um brilliant uh, Catherine McGuinness and Dr Shane Bergen thank you very much for joining us Now, the old adage goes that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yet, the past 150 years of scientific research on canines has shown us not only that that adage is mistaken. In actual fact, observing our faithful friends has taught us humans something new and rather unexpected. So what do we now know about man's best friend and what more can they teach us about ourselves? Jules Howard is a zoological consultant and correspondent and author of Wonder Dog, How the Science of Dogs Changed the Science of Life. He joins me now. Uh, welcome to the programme, Jules. Do you have a dog? 
Uh, I do have a dog. His name is Ozzy. He's a shaggy-haired lurcher. Uh, he's a handful, and yeah, he's he's a joy, like like so many dogs are. Lurchers are great dogs. Lurchers and whippets are the best, but they're they are big, and you need you need to you need to handle them. Yeah, he's he's definitely. I think. I mean, your listeners will feel the same, no doubt. It's it's not a small job undertaking this dog. I mean, dogs to me, you know, I think one thing that the, having a dog's taught me is that the sort of gap, if you like, between human cognition and what we're capable of and what we need to grow adequately is, you know, it's a, it's a spectrum, I suppose, to what dogs need. Now, I'm not dissing cats here, but I didn't feel that when I've had cats in the past to the same degree. But with dogs, you know, essentially we're talking the level of um, the level of connections, more like a toddler. Does that kind of make sense? <laughs> for, for all the cat people in the audience, what is the defining scientifically proven thing that makes dogs better than cats? So I, I, I'd say for cat lovers, I, I was thinking of it this, like dogs. So our relationship with dogs, what, 15,000 years in the making uh, our relationship with cats, cats have been evolving to the human ecosystem for about 6,000 years. So dogs have got a massive head start on cats. So I suppose cats are better at, I mean, they many cats do really well in human company, but often, you know, cats can do quite fine on their own as well. And we don't have that situation with dogs. Dogs are, the companion dogs that we share our lives with are so obviously kind of dependent on us, I suppose. So mm. it's a dependence thing, right? Yeah, but it's interesting, like by that logic in like, what in a hundred and in a few thousand years we might end up seeing cats behave more like dogs and like seem to care when we try and call them over to us like you know obey us when we ask them to do things to do things for rewards all the sort of things that dogs don't that dogs do very well but cats really don't yeah um, I, I, which, I, which, which would be really weird uh, to have a cat do dog stuff yeah i agree and I, this is it like i don't think right now this relationship that we have with cats and dogs is is the end you know they can, clearly will continue evolving like our cats um one of our cats died on the road and i was really really shocked and saddened to discover that it was like 25 percent of cats under three you know are going to die on the road now that's brutal it was i still get quite emotional talking about it now but you imagine that as a selection pressure over thousands of years clearly those dog those cats that are best adapted to you know to spot the, the headlights those ones that are best adapted to escape we will see evolution in that kind of way and obviously humans yeah. there is we provide so much by way of security and food those cats and dogs you know that that, that continue to um, make best use of that are going to be the ones that kind of flourish. So it's not over, definitely. Well, that, that's if we allow them to mate, of course, um, because evolution only works if you allow your pet to have children, which many of those many of those uh, cat and dog owners don't do. Um, so let's talk about uh, the book and some of the science. So I, I suppose one of the sad things that comes from this book is that dog research hasn't always been puppies and rainbows, has it? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I would say in Darwin's time, it kind of was puppets and rainbows, as you say. And Darwin and other scientists used dogs as a really good tool to sort of communicate to the public complex ideas about natural selection and artificial um, selection as well. But then, you know, in what the, way? well, in terms of, um, you know, Darwin's uh, 150 years ago, almost to the day, um, the expression of emotions in uh, man and animals is one of Darwin's sort of uh, lesser known greats, you know, lesser known books. But essentially, Darwin's idea is like, you know, look, the way that humans express themselves, um, the way that we communicate our emotions are 
no different really to how other mammals do it, uh, including dogs. So he would use dogs as an example in the way clearly they communicate so effectively with their tails, with their faces, even with the, the mm. shape of their body as an example of how um, evolution has, a, ha, has played a role in how we feel emotionally. So I suppose Darwin was using, a dogs, using dogs as a way to say to the public, you know what, there's not masses. There is clearly differences between humans and dogs, but essentially they're differences of mammal kind rather than kind of biblical differences, I suppose. But he was sort of an outlier in a way over the past, you know, up until I suppose up, up until the 60s and 70s, do- dogs, uh, the, the idea was that dogs didn't really feel the same way as as humans. And uh, like many animals, um, they were probably subjected to rather unpleasant research. Can you tell us yeah. briefly, because I don't, actually don't want to think too much about it as a dog owner. Um, tell us briefly about some of the, 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 sci- the so-called science that was being done um, pre-60s. Yeah, I think if you think of, of it this way, um, I mean, it starts with Pavlov and the idea of the brain being more like a machine. So as we start to get into a more industrial age, you know, dogs are windows that allow us to see the functioning of brains. And essentially, you know, Pavlov's idea of uh, ringing a bell, which is all, you know, actually completely um, not the truth of what happened, but perhaps we'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, Pavlov's idea of a mind being a blank slate and it's just Animals respond um, to things like bells. Um, they respond to experiences via rewards. In other words, we're all kind of conditioned, if you like, to um, to get rewards. And throughout the first half of the 20th century, you know, the idea was essentially there was no such thing as free will. You know, we were all just products of previous experiences and our brains, yeah. if you like, making the linkages between those. Now, in terms of, you know, unfortunately, how dogs were treated, the shameful thing is that the best way at the time that science thought to understand um, dog behaviours and by extension animal behaviours was through um, uh, essentially torture, so electric shocks. I mentioned Pavlov and the bell. There was no bell, it was a buzzer. And Pavlov would often stimulate the production of saliva with, um, you know, electrical currents. Um, But also, in some ways, the the, the early days of psychology as well, you know, we're looking at how, um, for instance, dogs you know, if they're essentially tortured again with electric shocks, um, how that comes to shape their personality and shape the dog they go on to become. So, you know, this idea of puppyhood and how it's really important to socialise our pets when they're puppies, that essentially comes from research like that, kind of that, as you say, led all the way through to the 1960s. So it's kind of hidden history, I suppose, of what we know about dogs. Uh, Oh, so so the idea was that um, a series of experiments done uh, in the 60s looking at monkeys and monkeys and how they re- responded to different types of um, uh, stimulus. And they found that mother, uh, the chimpanzees or monkeys that were not given, uh, you know, hugs and uh, and care and, and social time with their their mother, um, they they fared really badly in terms of mental health. Was that, that was happening. That sort of idea was also being explored with dogs. It was, yeah. And in fact, dogs in some ways are victims of their own success. So, you know, keeping dogs and experimenting on dogs, it was much cheaper. It required much less by way of experience compared to um, scientists working Harry with Harry Harlow's experiments. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so essentially they were, it was kind of boom time for that kind of research. And, it, and in fact, there was like a 10-year study in the 1960s by two um, early geneticists, uh, J.P. Scott and uh, Jonathan Fuller. And essentially what they did over 10 years is they bred up dogs and 
they had a, imagine like you know a room full of puppies of six different breeds and you give different experiences to each of those puppies and you assess what happens to them in adulthood and in fact the idea i mean one of the interesting tests there was you know if you raise puppies away from human contact you end up with dogs that are kind of interested in humanity but we're just not able to um uh connect in the same way that we see you know normally with dogs so in other words they're shy insecure and often quite aggressive towards approaching humans and you know the impact that has on their puppies again you see that relationship kind of continue so you know i mentioned with your what's your dog sorry have you got one or two my dog is my dog's name is roxy yeah okay so when roxy was a puppy i assume you know you had the same thing that 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 i was told repeatedly is that this socialization period the sensitive period between um you know uh, four weeks and 12 weeks where it's really important to give dogs lots of experiences of loud noises and strange people and strange objects and it's from that science in the 1960s that we um, got gathered an understanding, I suppose, of the importance of those life things. But we don't hear that at the vets. You know, we just hear like, here's the advice, go for it. And mm. in fact, I think yeah. it's kind of interesting to set that uh, those discoveries in the context of what we know about animal minds. What about uh, human relationships uh, with, with our dogs and the sort of research uh, gone into that? Like, um, have, have we have we been able to examine that relationship? There's some really clever experiments that give us a really good idea of yeah that, what that relationship is like and the strength of that relationship. So, um, what my favourite one was the um, work done on with dogs trained to sit in fMRI scanners, and essentially, you know, you can see the uh, emotional centres of a dog's brain light up when they see their human companion. And the same, if a human sits in an fMRI machine, you see the same response. So clearly, you know, the emotional senses of the brain associated with pleasure, there is a lighting up going on in that re- relationship, which is cool, it's fascinating. And similarly with uh, brain hormones, things like oxytocin, the so-called love molecule, um, you know, in uh, clever experimental setups where an owner sits with their dog and they have long gazes with each other, you can see quite clearly that oxytocin levels rise. And so, you know, in other words, there's a feeling of mammalian pleasure, I suppose, that both dogs and humans feel when they look at each other. But interestingly, you know, if you look at your dog um, for, you know, 20, 30 seconds, you might expect to see a up to 300% rise in oxytocin in the human, but in the dogs, and not all dogs, I should add, but in, in you know, the average dog, you will see 150%. So humans, 300, dogs, 150. So there's clearly attachment there. And in the book, I'm, to be honest, prepared to call it love. But I would say, you know, from that research, you know, the human um, attachment may be stronger than dog-wise, if that makes sense. Have we bred them to be so socialised, almost to a fault? Um, You know, this idea of hyper sociability is is there research to suggest that um that is baked into the genes to make them super loving and super dependent and is there is there an issue with that do you know that is i would say one of the most important points so um we know quite clearly that there are certain mammal genes that code they very closely associated with sociability and dogs um you know on these genes if they have three four five um kind of mutations on those genes you see them become more and more social and what's interesting in those hypersocial dogs so the dogs that have five muta- mutations on these genes is you see yes they're really super friendly 
And in fact, one of the dogs in the book called Marla is, you know, lives on campus in America at Princeton University and just meets all the students, absolutely loves it. But the downside to that is, of course, um, Marla hates to be on her own and suffers massive amounts of um, separation anxiety. So, yeah, I, I, I actually agree with that. I think we should we should celebrate their dog's attachment to us but we shouldn't be surprised when dogs sometimes have a hard time kind of being on their own definitely and in fact with my own dog I find that a real taxing part of our relationship is you know clearly Oz doesn't like to be on his own you know and we have to work on that kind of together. I've seen a few videos on the internet where people have developed sort of push button devices for dogs so that they can communicate better with humans and I was going to have someone on the program about it. It just looked like such a nonsense idea <laughs> that I, I abandoned it completely. Just wondering, have you looked at the science of those things? Like, can we train a dog to communicate beyond, you know, barking and like standing at the door wanting to go out for a whiz? Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, on those, there's some Instagram dogs that have got absolutely millions of followers, haven't they? Um, and essentially, as you say, the, the dog presses a soundboard and presses a button that says out or it might say, um, you know, food or, uh, you know, so I think one of them is kind of, um, you know, please and thank you. And, you know, clearly these dogs in these videos anyway, which could be edited, are using these soundboards really eloquently. The interesting thing about that, of course, is that, you know, that science was done in 1880. You know, there were scientists doing that instead of using soundboards, they were using um, you know, little cards with words written on them, like bone or cup of tea uh, or water or out. And, you know, quite cleverly, clearly, dogs are able to wield those signs pretty quickly. And in fact, I think it's two thirds of tests in that 1880 study, the dog was holding their bone sign. So the scientist involved was like, oh, well, clearly the dog understands the concept of bone. But dogs, <laughs> dogs, dogs, uh, you know, if there's if they're good at they're good at many things, but they're particularly good at operantly conditioning. So doing things that get them rewards. So the dog doesn't need to understand the concept of words to get the reward. It just has to go, okay, the one, the, the, the page with the most black lines on it is the one that gets me the bone. And I, th- I see the, the same problem, I suppose, with that, with these Instagram dogs that can use soundboards. They're clearly wielding words, but I, I, I worry that we shouldn't put too much meaning on their understanding of the concept of words. Is that, it's a long answer, but it's a great question. Finally, why haven't we figured out a dog translator collar like you see in Up? Like, why have we not? <laughs> why have we not translated the barks of dogs into human speech? Surely that should be relatively easy. Even just a kind of a general idea of what they're what they're barking about. If we're gonna go, if we're gonna go full Pixar on it, and you know, and and as you say in Up, the dog can basically express quite complicated things. I think if we could do that personally, I. Th- I think we'd be a bit disappointed because 90% of the conversation would be, you know, food. If it's my dog, and I assume the dogs of most of your listeners, it would be, you know, mostly about food. And in fact, of course, these gorillas, Coco the gorilla taught sign language. A lot of those conversations that Coco the gorilla was doing with sign language were about food. And, and interesting. But maybe, they, maybe the scientists weren't great conversationalists. Well, this is true. and we may, We may never know. But I think... Um, mostly what we'd get from a dog collar if the dog could talk would be kind of um, I am threatened bark or I am happy bark or you know you think of a bark it's basically an attention getting device so it's kind of like hey I am happy hey I am nervous hey I a dog is approaching I'm unsure you know so we would get um, signals definitely but I don't know if dogs we'd be able to have conversations with them it feels to me like a really human centric question and I would say um, 
we need to get better at uh, having our own philosophical collar that we can put on and understand our dogs a little bit better. <laughs> Let dogs be dogs is what you're saying, Jules. Yeah, definitely. Well, the book is called Wonder Dog, How the Science of Dogs Changed the Science of Life. It's by Jules Howard. Jules, thanks for your time. Thanks ever so much, Jonathan. Cheers. I enjoy that. If you um, have a dog that you believe has a special talent, uh, please do get in touch. Send us an email, scienceatnewstalk.com, um, explaining what it is. If you have a video of it, um, uh, please do send that. And we'll get to those in next week's podcast. And that's it for this week's programme. Thanks so much to producers Aoife Breen and Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane and Steve Dalton researching and on sound Jojo Cardozo. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.